HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the host of hosts, Patrick Bardens, founder of Heritage Foods USA, as well as this lovely, dear station of ours, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, I'll just let you take it. I mean, you have your show, The Main Course, on Sundays. You started this station. and You want me to interview you? Is this <laughs> the best show you've ever done? With you? Yes. This is the best show I've ever done with you. Good. <laughs> this book, you know, we're, we're on here because th- this is an amazing tome that you've created, The Carnivore's Manifesto. Oh, stop. Well, I, I sat with it last week on vacation, and what it is is, you know, you see a book like this and you think Faulkner in it, it's chapters, uh, it's quips, it's phrases that, you know, these things eventually build, you know, to something bigger. Or they're all separate ideas on their own. And the amazing thing about this book is that they're all edifying the same, you know, singular ideal, which is be part of this sustainable food movement because we want a better future for the world as a whole. And I don't mean just in food or meat, but, you know, in totality. Tell me about what this kind of mantra is um, well, it was basically an accumulation of experiences that I'd have the luck to experience with, uh, you know, Carlo Petrini or Alice Waters and all these people. And, um, you know, Carlo, when he talked, he would always originally, he would talk for hours, but he would, it would be a bunch of freestanding independent thoughts. 
And yes, they were united by food, but they were freestanding. He would talk everything about, you know, money to politics to his grandmother to the taste of an eggplant. But, you know, they were all uh, basically one-liners. And, you know, Alice Waters, uh, you know, learned a little from Carla that way, too. And she'd be like, there's three things you need to know. And that was different than her style. But Carla was really a, a great one-line guy. And then uh, he, he taught me that... Um, he basically taught me that, you know, one-liners is how people think in a way. And so each of these chapters are 50 chapters. They're all two to three pages long. Um, and they're meant, even though they're under the umbrella of food, they're meant to be 50 totally independent, diverse thoughts under food, um, more along the lines uh, of the way people enjoy to digest information. I was also in grad school, studied Roland Barthes, who is the godfather of semiotics, and he never wrote longer than a page and a half or two pages when he would be covering the semiotic issues when he started that discipline. I love that. I was like, in and out in two pages. Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought it was also interesting that Carlo Petrini started, you know, what is it, radio um, bra onde rose. Red waves. Yeah. He started that prior to starting Slow Food, about 10 years prior yeah. to starting Slow Food. He had done a bunch of things. He was the Santa Claus uh, to local charity children, uh, orphanages. He started a folk festival. He started a radio station. Yeah, he did a lot of that. But it all fell underneath the auspice of slow. Mm -hmm. what, what does that word mean to you? That's a good question. Slow. Uh, it's definitely the time that it takes, uh, the time that it's taking to change the food world to be more sustainable is slow. Um, slow, it's like a natural rhythm. Uh, we have a chapter in there that's called slow down. And we say, if you, you know, fly in a plane, you don't really experience much of the trip, you know, other than what you see in the airplane in the airport. Whereas if you were to take a horse and carriage across, uh, to Chicago or across the country, you would experience millions of things and probably be a more interesting, self-actualized, independent thinker too. You wouldn't just sit and watch Jet blue television and start quoting things that you read about. You would be independently coming up with the thoughts. So yeah, so it's a, it's a nat it's our natural rhythm. Well, you know, I kept on thinking of it as this idea of with intention, you know, uh, for insight or advancement. You know, because when you do something slowly, you do it methodically. So you're not going to do it if there isn't a real end to that mean. Mm -hmm. You're investing so much time, like you said. So. What have you invested time in aside from, you know, Heritage Foods USA, Heritage Radio? How did you start this journey of slow? Well, it's interesting. Uh, how did I start this journey of slow? God, I shouldn't have had a, a shot of alcohol before this interview. <laughs> this is uh, philosophical. Um, you know, how did I get to the journey of slow? Well, slow things come to people who are consistent at things. Sometimes I'm, uh, you know, hard on the people I work with because I'm like, it has to be consistent and operating at 98% or better all the time. So, I mean, it's very boring slow. It's like the art of apprenticeship. You're like, okay, so you're going to learn to become a bat blacksmith. Or let's say someone's going to learn to become a butcher. Uh, you know, they might in the old days go the first year without ever even touching a knife. That would be how you learn. But it's always great. Those I was just watching the Karate Kid, and uh, that's slow. You know, Pat Morita, right, and uh, Ralph Macchio, and he didn't know why he was doing it. So you know, wax on, 
wax off. And then you would see he's like, do that for all the fence, all the miles around the property. And then he had to clean the cars and there were 500 cars and he just didn't get it. And I knew the scene that was coming, but it still fulfilled me. I was like, hold on, Andrew, I got to watch the scene where he <laughs> explains to him why he had been making him do all that work. So, you know, I kind of came to respect the slow process of apprenticeship. And, you know, even though these sound like big things, Heritage Foods and Heritage Radio, I mean, I always do the same thing for foods week in and week out. And for radio, I just meet with Aaron. So it, it ends up being the years of consistency that matter more than the idea. Well, I mean, Aaron was joking around by sending out your first radio show on Heritage oh, Radio Network. I can't believe she did that. But at the same time, it shows that... you know I sounded slow. <laughs> but five years ago, it's consistent with now in you know, your thoughts and what you were hoping the world to hear. Um, so consistency has always played a part. You know, it has always been like a common thread throughout Heritage as a whole. And it's the single thing most lacking in why more change isn't made. Um, you know, people don't sit, do the same thing over and over for 10 years, um, and therefore it doesn't happen. You know, it's uh, many people have great ideas, but to actually implement them takes a long time. You well, know. Let's talk about those slow ideas, because I want to talk about the people that make up, you know, the larger system. Farmers, slaughterhouses, distributors, chefs, restaurants merchants members of the csa absolutely but they inherently well not even inherently they they are educated about all those different steps and then inherently know the whole story that's what gives you a foundation so let's start with the farmers who were the first ones you met well um you know and by the way there's some terrible farmers out there even the little guys who, you know, claim to be doing the best stuff because they're small. I mean, some of them are terrible. I mean, uh, just like certain commodities which are produced on the widest scale are delicious. You know, Tabasco sauce. I mean, what other sauce does your oyster want? So, I mean, it goes against sometimes what people think. Just because it's smaller farm doesn't mean it's necessarily but, delicious. But Tabasco's a, a, an interesting story, too, because that's a slow story. You know, people yeah. don't talk about how... You know, for the first year of business, they didn't have anything to sell because that vinegar and that hot sauce was sitting in barrel. Right. So that, again, was with intention. With intention. Yeah, I like that. Uh, um, in a way, I have interviewed you. You've said the most <laughs> interesting thing of the interview so far. So uh, your question was? Let's start with farmers. The first farmers yeah. was Frank Reese, and that's a big part of this book. He was always a proponent of genetics, and he takes it to the extreme. He thinks that a locally raised commodity breed turkey means nothing. It's still a commodity. So he's looking at it from the taste perspective, from the taste perspective, but even more, he's looking at it from the health of the animal perspective. And is that animal best able to reproduce? And is it best able to, you know, grow at a sound rate? So the genetics is a very important thing about livestock. We don't think about it. And one of the chapters, Survival of the Fattest, makes the point that, uh, you know, big corporations through artificial insemination actually breed for the misfits. They do not breed for a healthy animal. That's why they've been able to cut the growing time of a cow uh, by 25%, a, a pig by half, and a chicken by 75%. It doesn't make any sense, but they've done that through bio-wrenching. I mean, we're going to talk a little more about big ag and, and commodity markets, but 
Let's talk about this $140 turkey. Uh, you have a chapter in there that explains why that investment you know, it isn't as absurd as most people think going out for a $5 hamburger at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. I was asked, I was on Leonard Lope on NPR, which is a real honor. And he asked me, uh, you know, uh, we believe in slow food. You know, those who believe in it, it started as a little bit of an anti-American movement. Are we anti-American by saying these things? And I, was, I, I didn't answer the way I would have liked to, but Smithfield and Purdue those companies, I think, end up being an anti, being anti-American, and I understand that they feed people, but if they're doing it in the wrong way or hurting animals in the process, then we shouldn't be eating them their stuff, and we should be eating a lot less meat. So I do view it as un-American to make anyone suffer for profit. It just is not okay. And even if they're an animal and can't speak for themselves, that doesn't count. All the more reason to be uh, helpful to them. So to answer your question, you know, the way I answer is, you know, a turkey, using them as an example, but you can apply it to other livestock. You know, at its beak cut off because they're naturally picky eaters and they don't want them to be picky. They want them to fatten up as fast as possible. So they cut their beak off so that they can do that. They remove their natural instinct to roost which is the way they sleep. There's nowhere to do that. They overcrowd them. They never see the light of day. They need medicine in their food to survive. Sometimes they even pollute the rivers with the refuse of the animals. I mean, who are we telling to eat that turkey to? The $2 turkey is the un-American turkey. And the $140 turkey from a small independent farmer or a big independent farmer, but independent, that is the American turkey. And, uh, you know, of course, no one should starve, but no one should be gorging themselves on disgusting hamburger meat that's bad for them and bad for the environment. It, it's great because the, these chapters are, you know, two, three pages, and they're perfect segues. There's so many ways we can go right now, but I want to talk about to hell with local, eat the best. Because you said Frank Reese was also a proponent of that. You know, why eat local when it's not the best? You know, you, you want to support a, a global economy. Why doesn't that feel like slow food sometimes? Why, why do we misinterpret that, you know, we must eat local? Well, I think what ended up happening is, you know, we forget that Steve Jenkins, uh, one of the founders of Fairway, was a, uh, you know, one of the, the first guy to ever bring French and Italian cheeses to America. That was in like 1981 at the Dean and DeLuca food counter. People forget Lydia Bastianich introduced, was really one of the first proponents, the Alice Waters, basically, of introducing Americans to canned tomatoes and good olive oil. That was in the early 80s very late 70s so all of within these past 30 years so much has happened and one of the things is that the locavore movement is a movement that is a philosophical idea it's not a gastronomic movement it is becoming it and as the tetoir of the farmers built um, you know there is going to be better local food but um, I mean so many places Ann and I go to, and we love our restaurants, and, you know, mostly we love stuff, but so often we're just like, oh, no, why why would they use that ricotta, or why would they use, they just don't know. Just like I go to old coffee shops uh, that I grew up on, and I'm like, you can make 
better french fries. There's just no reason to have a fifth-rate french fry in the city that, you know, and I say that to my friends because I love Greek coffee shops, and I know most of that meat comes from a cruel system, but I'll keep eating there because I love it and I grew up on that food, um, you know, especially when I go up to visit my mom where all the coffee shops are <laughs> on the Upper East Side. But, um, you know, low, um, gastronomy is a science, and cert- if it doesn't taste the best it's ultimately not helping the long-term future of that farmer or his immediate community if he's raising a fifth-rate cheese. And how do you know if it's a fifth-rate cheese or not? Um, You know, you have to talk to people who really know. And, you know, I I hear people uh, up in Vermont advising local cheesemakers, people in the dairy business, they're struggling and someone's advising them to make a jalapeno cheese. And I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) that's so terrible. You shouldn't do that. Make a decent feta and you can build a family around a decent feta. Uh, Jalapeno, that's just because it's local doesn't mean it's right. I mean, by the way, Vermont, and I love every Vermonter to death, and we wrote a chapter in honor of them. They are so pro-local that their restaurant scene is terrible. I mean, I would rank Vermont as one of the worst states to eat out in. And that's because they love each other too much. That jalapeno cheese will get served in every good restaurant. They're like, we specialize in four cultures, Chinese, Japanese, French, and Italian. I'm like, you can't do that. That's too many. There's no way your chef can be making all four. And everything is always offered on a bed of rice pilaf. And I'm like, anyway, it's just to say sometimes the local vor movement can hurt food culture. But by the way, ingredient-wise, it's probably one of the top two or three states in the nation. It, that's an interesting conundrum to be in. And we're actually going to take a break and talk about the 12 Great American Tetours. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Julia Tertian, host of Radio Cherry Bomb. This summer, Heritage Radio Network is turning five. Since our launch in 2009, we've continued to bring you food and culture content like nobody else. And we need, need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a passionate, grassroots, action-oriented nonprofit organization. That means we depend on the support from listeners like you to help keep us alive. If you love what you hear on Heritage Radio Network, visit our website and become a member today. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support. Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, Heritage Radio Network. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Again, your host, Michael Harlan Turkdale, here today with the man behind Heritage Radio, Heritage Foods USA, Patrick Martins. And we're celebrating his new book, Carnivore's Manifesto. 
And I just want to read this subtitle again, Eating Well, Eating Responsibly, and Eating Meat. You know, we have talked about meat, but we've talked about, like, the grander idea of how to eat more so than anything else. And, you know, right before the break, we were talking about this idea of terroir. Can you define that for me? What terroir is to the soil, terroir is to the mind. Tet being the French for head. And in the book itself, you've defined 12 great American tetoirs. Which on Leonard Lopate, he was quite annoyed with. You could <laughs> tense the sarcasm in his voice where he's like, Vermont? Yeah. The Amish? What kind of hell word is this if, if it can have those two as examples? The American South, New York City, American Beer, the Independent American Fisherman. I mean, it, this goes on, obviously, up to that, that dozen. Vermont, Portland. Mm-hmm. New Orleans. But you're not telling them to stay in their place. You're telling people to experience all these different tetoirs and, you know, kind of bring the best of everything back, both both terror and tetoir, and create something anew. Well, the two things that big corporations destroyed the most was any sense of place in the food. So they destroyed terroir. They flattened, they homogenized, they made more boring. Uh, And the second thing that they obliterated was much of the world's accumulated tetoir, which were the skill sets of the people. And through an overly mechanized uh, push-button type approach, which respects people the least, it, it presumes the worst in people. There was also a chapter in there about the extinction of the empowered middle manager, not just in supermarkets, but in banks and the, your savings and loans all around the world. They produce, they pr- uh, presume the worst in people and give them the least amount of power. So I figured we needed to come up with a word that talked about, you know, what happened when Ford and his conveyor belt system made sure that a guy did nothing over a 50-year career other than put a windshield wiper into the car. And granted, he got paid, and, you know, it's not all bad, but we much more prefer what we, uh, that business model, which we also talked about, the Poilin Bakery, where you have about 100 bakers, but where it's 20 teams of five, each one working as its own independent unit, and you're never lowest than fifth on the totem pole. And the... There might be slight differences in the final product, but they're more charming inconsistencies than they are, you know, completely different products. Well, I mean, that's really, you know, a discussion about diversification more more than anything else. Because if you you talk about being specialized or dealing with a monoculture, if anything goes wrong with that, as we've seen it has many a times, mm-hmm. you lose that whole arm, you yeah. lose that whole leg. You, yeah. you know, you're, you're left with this dump of a body mm-hmm. that that can't really do anything, and that's. What's happened to a lot of our meat? Yeah. So let, let's talk about the diversification of species because there, there's this one really great um, kind of like note in the book where it lists off all the different types of cows. I think that's the pigs, only note. Sheep, yeah. But it's a great footnote because you see how many there are and how many have you experienced. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw a Berkshire and a Duroc this weekend. Mm-hmm. Two out of, I think, the you know three dozen listed underneath pig here. Right. How important is it to have all of those at your, I hate to use the word disposal, but, you know, arm's length away? Well, from, uh, you know, the... <clears throat> 
Well, for taste, uh, you know, we should be enjoying meat. We shouldn't be using it like fueling our bodies at the gas station. Uh, two, again, how arrogant uh, and un-American are these corporations to push all these different breeds into extinction and not keep up hobby farms? And I know their story. If we end up having a red wattle bacon, it's going to compromise the legitimacy of our other supply, which is the 99.9. And it didn't matter. It shouldn't matter. They should be forced to keep some red wattles or Gloucester old spots alive. I mean, uh, basically, when you put all your genetic eggs into one basket, you risk that a man-made or novel pathogen could come and you lose your whole body and as you were saying um you know potato famine that happened although there are numerous varieties of potatoes that would have survived that blight and so you know we really get you know angry in a way that so much power could come to such few companies and that the people leading those companies have such bad taste and have no desire to try to keep up the diversity of their biggest asset, which are their animals. I mean, that, that's... They mistreat their only asset. But, and their workers a little bit, maybe, too. I don't know. They're accused of that in books like Fast Food Nation. But, uh, you know, they must aspire to do better. And if you take a chicken and put it out in nature and it dies in six hours, you're not doing it right. Yeah. And if you have to put low doses of medicine into the animal's feed from the minute they're born till the minute they die just so that they don't die in a few hours, you're doing something wrong. They have to become better farmers. And that's about output. You know, when, when your thought is about the end of a process rather than the process as a whole, that's what you get, a chicken that dies in the field, you know, mm-hmm. within hours of being born. But there doesn't have to be output. The beauty of this argument that I'm making in the book I wrote, it's just about meat. So eat less meat. <laughs> that's it. They just eat less of it. So really you just need one page, they eat less meat. Basically that's what it is. More farms should be producing more of our food. Meat should be more expensive. And no, we're not accusing the people should starve and the food should cost more. Everything, you know, we're not getting into the subsidies. Yes, whatever it takes to feed people. But when that guy's eating barbecue spare ribs six nights a week, that's a no-no. Because uh, it, it just isn't coming from a good system. Eating an endangered species, too, nose to tail cooking in a sense Mm -hmm. talk to me about you know how we preserve those animals and how we extend the use of those animals by grinding their meat basically a hamburger meatball pasta sauce ragu are the best ways of helping small family farms because they have the lowest portion cost in the world. As you know, if you've ever made a pasta sauce with ground beef in it, it probably comes to 3 or $4 a person, including everything. So um, at $3 a person for a big dinner, all you can eat practically, uh, that's really not that much. And, um, you know, I think that the nose-to-tail movement is a romantic movement, but I think the bigger, more powerful movement um, you know, is no is basically grinding up the meat, allowing people to get 31-pound bags of ground lamb sitting in their freezer and they take out two pounds a day or a week or something like that for, for their preparations. You say lamb. Let's talk about that and goat because I, I know I've, I've experienced a number of goat-tobers. Uh, I grew up eating goat. Love it. Hmm. Caribbean, roti. All that. Why is it that Americans don't eat those two animals? 
Well, it's a very good question. Why don't Americans eat those animals? Um, I mean, because we're importing a lot of lamb still yeah. from New Zealand. But still, the per capita is less than a pound per person. Or, you know, as a, yeah. on goat, it's definitely less than a pound per person per year. So, um, you know, why don't we? Um, I think it probably just has to do with the size of the animal. Uh, and the, Now, if we were eating hamburger meat from these items, like April Bloomfield does lamb burger, and the more of that that happens, we will. But I think that because people want the chops, you know, the lamb basically provides you two or three really great cuts, the leg, the shoulder, and the chops, and the saddle. Once you get into the ribs and the shanks, you're really struggling to get meat off of it. Yeah. So that's why I grind the whole animal, and uh, you have 50 pounds of hamburger meat per animal. That, I, I say, one little lamb burger grill in Times Square could keep 30 family farms in business 365 days a year by, you know, grinding up their, their lamb. We've talked about those family farms a little bit, Frank Reese at least. But let's talk about slaughterhouses, distributors, because there are so many people within, you know, this food system, this food chain that that need to be there to support it as well. Uh, slaughterhouses, paradise lockers. Tell me about it. Well, you know, those are the real, um, you know, they're like real celebrities here in the East Coast because they are so few of them. And the few that exist are kind of... Uh, not forced to market themselves so they can be very introverted. But in the Midwest, there's this really awesome culture of farmers and slaughterhouse owners and people who hunt and then, uh, or, you know, deer season and then bring their deer in. And the slaughterhouse is like, well, how do you want us to prepare your deer? Do you want sausage out of it? Do you want the cuts? Do you want us to smoke anything? I mean, it's like a real part of the family there, the slaughterhouse. Voting stations used to be located in slaughterhouses often because that's where people were. Um, so, yeah, it's a real nexus, and um, it's also where farmers go to sell their stuff and see if anyone's interested. I mean, it's kind of like the town square, you know, of, of many cities is that kind of slaughterhouse waiting room. So uh, we're big believers. They're very hard workers. Consistency is the toughest thing in a slaughterhouse. That's the toughest thing to find in the few decades or decade now going into our second decade. I mean, we've met one maybe two slaughterhouses that we can really trust. And now it's not us, it's the chefs. I mean, the chefs are like, I don't want that local stuff anymore. Or I don't want the one from that other slaughterhouse. We're like, why? Why? We'll get it right. And by the third time a chef tells you that, you can never ship them anything again because you're calling into question your whole operation. Yeah, slaughterhouses are very, very important and more of them should exist outside major cities. From slaughterhouse to distributor because the chefs receive not not you know, directly by stopping by Heritage Foods USA and picking up their meat. But there's guys like Larry Buchel of Cannonball Express yeah. and, you know, Lafreda here in New York City. How important are they? Um, well, you know, merchants matter. You know, the Medici's were merchants. The, uh, yeah, the Medici's, the Rothschilds were merchants. I mean, the merchants, everyone knows their favorite explorer. Those were all merchants ships, you know, sent out by kings or queens to try to bring silks back and all that. That's still exciting. And again, that locavore movement, I think to a certain extent, has jumped over the D'Artagnans and De Bragas and Lafridas and Heritage Foods of the world. Now everyone wants to meet that farmer hand to hand 
let me tell you, there's a good chance that that guy by himself might not, you know, be bringing in the best Japanese genetics, you know, to breed into his system. He might, you know, he also could be fantastic. But the point is, is you need both. And uh, just like you, you know, yeah, you need both. So both should be talked about and rewarded and you know, given awards to it, the James Beard Award. Who's the best merchant? Who's the best distributor, you know? You know, we're not saying that local is bad no. because there are a lot of local farms that you actually work with as yeah. well. Um, who around the New York City area? Do we part? like the best? Yeah. Well, I mean, we through the green market, we work with uh, Deep Mountain Maple Syrup, uh, which we're very proud of. Uh, also at the farmer's market, consider Bardwell Farm, which is in Vermont, and they drive in to sell their cheeses, and uh, we sell their goats in October. Um, and then we work with about 14 goat farms. They are mostly in upstate New York, but there are a couple in Vermont and I think one in New Hampshire. Um, I won't mention them all by name, but they are super awesome, and we love selling goat. And then uh, we are now partnering with the Slaughterhouse in um, – I think it's in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure of the town, but we're always on the lookout for local pigs. It is uh, much more expensive, and it's working with the second slaughterhouse, so in a way it doubles our work, but we've always done it. I mean, for the past six years, seven years, almost every week, with rare exception, we've been bringing in local pigs. So, um, you know, we try to do our thing. But, uh, again, the Midwest uh, is a great space because Kansas City is in the center of the country, so whatever cuts the East Coast doesn't buy like porterhouse pork chops and picnic shoulders, you have the West Coast who appreciate a little bit the discount. Then you're not trying to move 60,000 pounds of meat into one city. That's very hard. So the Carnivore's Manifesto is, is national, if not international. It's, it's not No, it's so definitely only national at best. Uh, there's no – I don't think we ever mention anything outside of the U.S. in the whole book other than that Carlo came from Italy maybe, and that was just one of the chapters. So – what do you look out outside of the U.S. as influence to, you know, uh, change the way Americans eat? Outside the U.S.? Because yeah. obviously you came from working with Carlo Petrini, being in Bra, being part of Slow Foods Italy, and you saw how they kind of changed. I mean, they mm -hmm. went through the same things as us. Yeah. So, And you saw how they changed. Do you see other nations? Do you see other, you know, global food systems that's a tough question. No, I mean, I'm very, you know, xenophobic about the U.S. I mean, we should be eating a domestic lamb. So I say to hell with importing anything. And, you know, it, for meats and all this charcuterie, we're paying $700 a pound to bring in the Iberico. That should absolutely be local. And I think Carla would say the same thing. He probably suffers from the prosciutto di Parma he gets at local Osteria because they're so overproducing to fulfill a world demand that everything suffers. And, you know, uh, just same truffles. They keep exporting them. So people in Alba can't even get truffles, and it's growing all around them, but they're all being exported. So I think people should eat only domestically. But they should eat from the whole domestic region. And in Europe, it's awesome because uh, local or as, as many countries are local to each other. You know, France, Italy, those are just a, a few miles away sometimes. Well, it's also this idea of shopping around you know it, i think you say in the book if you don't you know go to five different shops you're not doing 
sustainable food correctly. Yes. Why is that? Well, just, you know, you can't go to Whole Foods, uh, although they are sponsors. So if you do, <laughs> we support you in doing that. But you can't go to one place and say, oh, I buy everything from one place and I'm doing it right. That's actually wrong. It's the opposite. You have to do it from four or five. Even if, be prepared, you have to walk five minutes to get there. I mean, would you eat a crappy bagel just because you don't want to walk an extra five minutes? No, you should go out of your way to support that guy who's kettle boiling it and doing it right. You know, I always think of the Michelin Guide when you talk about, like, eco-gastronomy or, or, you know, traveling for food. Um, I know a lot of people jokingly say it was initially to sell a lot more tires, Mm -hmm. but it was also giving you a map of wherever you were, you knew where good food was. And I like the Michelin Guide and the uh, Osteria Guide, too, which is Slow Foods version for the Osteria in Italy. They never change. It's always the same 10 restaurants. That makes sense to me. To constantly have a new top 10 list. I mean, what happened to the last top 10? What issue am I getting? Is this one of the good ones? There can't be, and also 50 best restaurants in Brooklyn. No, there's not that many good ones. <laughs> I mean, what are your favorite three restaurants in Brooklyn? My, I, I cook at home so much that... But, I mean, that's the question. The yeah. Michelin Guide would just blurt them out. Yeah, no. We live in a culture where mediocrity is basically accepted because the people are well-intentioned. And that's not helping them. They should be embraced and supported while also producing better stuff. So I would say the top four in Brooklyn, I mean, you know, who would argue with Tannerine? I agree with Tannerine. Because, I mean, she does something very unique. You know, I think uh, Roberta's so unique and the food is so interesting would have to be there. Uh, Lucali's, that guy only makes one thing. All the time. He only has one item. If he would just croon, it would be a complete experience. (laughs) He is a a potential crooner. Peter Luger. You know, but anyway, it's just to say it's tough. Because then would you say Vinegar Hill House? Would you say one that's just a personal favorite, but you know it's not the best? Like someone like Junior's, but they know it's not the best food. But anyway, that's a tough question. I think Americans are like, oh, what do you mean pick three? Three best restaurants in Manhattan. How do you do it? You know, but we live in a culture where you're like, no, that local place downstairs that just opened, that's serving 100% commodity food, that has a happy hour from 5 to 7, they make a pretty good chicken tender. No, we have too many restaurants. You know, I love when I hear the 20 restaurants have closed, not Union Squares, but the real crappy ones. Jesus, you know, people should be eating more at the better restaurants and less at the worse ones. The last thing we need is another 80 restaurants in New York. I want to end with something more visual, Um, the not-so-candid camera chapter. As a photographer, I have been in a few slaughterhouses, have seen... Big ones? um, No, because they're really hard to get into, as Mm -hmm. as you very well know. I've been in USDA plants. Um, That's a whole other show, discussing watching that happen. But the fact that there isn't transparency in that aspect of the food systems in Mm -hmm. the U.S.? I mean, how much ire does that bring? Those guys are un-American. People who argue for gag laws are un-American. What they are is pro, I don't even know the word, where very few people remain rich while a bunch of other people remain poor, maybe sick, and ignorant. Those people are un-American. All those senators, you know, you're like, they're patriots. Yes, maybe in some things. But you can't be a patriot sometimes and not others. Patriots are always pro 
America and to argue against a third-party arbiter watching the very places where 11 billion livestock are processed every year is un-American. And, uh, you know, they will argue that, uh, you know, Frank Reese or Heritage Foods is un-American or, you know, that we come from, you know, uh, part communist slow food and, oh, these are hippies and, oh, they smoke pot. But all those big guys are un-American. And, uh, you know, once you start, uh, you know, breaking down how they're patriots and how they're not, I, I think you can't take money from a cruel system. And benefit. You know, this is like maybe 10% of the Carnivores Manifesto. There's so much more. Pick up the book today. But I, I, It is a positive book. I'm being is. negative now by no, insulting no. Vermont. But. It's, it's not that you're being negative. It's that you're being honest, you know. And what I, I kind of really loved about this book is that you could kind of pick and choose your chapters, too, because you're not asking someone to wholly follow this manifesto in its entirety. No. But, uh, you know... Learn a little here and there and maybe yeah. piece that together. You don't have to read it in order either. I don't think I did. I kind of flipped, flipped yeah. around. The index is one of my favorite parts of the book. I'm a big fan of yours, Michael. I've been listening to your <laughs> show for years. I think you're a fantastic photographer. You, you literally do every single cookbook out there. I don't know how you have the time, but thank you. It's been a real honor to be thank on. You. Well, I think we have to end with the fact that we are on our last week of membership and fundraising drive become a member today. We also have amazing prizes that you can bid on at Charity Buzz. Uh, auction items like uh, the two-night stay at the Nomad Hotel, uh, private dinner at 11 Madsen Park, and then amazing cocktail experience on top of that Nomad You know, later that night, as well as a day with Nathan Mervold of Modernist Cuisine. So go check all that out via all our social medias and continue to support Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, and if you like Michael, I mean, to (laughs) honor him, you listen to his show every week or every other week, something like that, and this is the way to say thank you is through any donation from $1 all the way to 1000 to (laughs) 2500 It's very easy, you know, uh, to say thank you, and that's how you do it. Well, thank you, Patrick, and we got to thank our sponsor, Edwards Farm. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Absolutely, because all these farms, too, are not only... It's like that um, hair club for men kind of thing. They, you know, they're not only sponsors of ours, but we're sponsors of theirs. And he has a chapter in there, USDA. Take my ham, please. <laughs> you can read more. Chapter 21. The Carnivores Manifesto, Patrick Bardens. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Durkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.